0: Are you looking to learn more about investing in the central Indiana real estate market? You've come to the right place. Welcome to the Indy Real Estate Investing Podcast with TNH Realty, where we discuss all things related to investing in the central Indiana real estate market. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Indie Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Tallman with TH Realty. We are a residential property management company that services the central Indiana market. With me today is a very special guest, someone I've known a long time now, I can say, because I guess we've both been in this industry a long time, and that is Laura Conway. She's our attorney. And she's with the law firm of Thrasher, Bushman and Vocal. Welcome to the show, Laura.
1: Thank you, Jeremy, so much for having me.
0: Yeah. So I think we're going to do a future podcast, the importance of building a team when you become a real estate investor. We've kind of hit on it in the past, but we're going to, I think I want to drill into it a lot more in the future. But I think when people think of what our team is here at TNH, they think, well, it's our staff, which our staff is incredibly important to what we do. They're a big part of our team but I can definitely say Laura I consider you part of our team here at TNH um an attorney is so important to have as a property management company as a real estate investor there's a lot of landlord tenant laws there's a lot of fuzziness out there about what it, what landlords can't do what tenants can and can't do so they're very important so you know just when we've seen it all we think we've seen it all uh, we occasionally have to deal with issues where it's like, well, let's let's give Laura a call. Let's shoot Laura an email because um, we don't know it all. We don't pretend to know it all. Um, and your guidance has been invaluable to us over the years. So well, thank you. So I guess we'll start to give everyone Laura kind of a quick background about who you are and how you arrived at where you are today.
1: Okay. Uh, so like you said, my name is Laura Conway. I'm a partner at Thrasher Bushman and Vocal. We are a a firm that does mostly business and real estate law throughout central Indiana, though I do branch out to other locations. I I personally, I've been with the firm since, let's see here, 2004, I believe I started as a law clerk. I went Mm -hmm. to a a high school here in central Indiana. Then I went to IU Bloomington for my undergrad and went to law school at IU Indianapolis, which is now called McKinley. Mm -hmm. And I started at the firm as a law clerk. So I started out just sort of learning I stayed on as a law clerk throughout yeah. law school. And once I graduated, I was hired as an attorney and I've been there ever since. So I've been with the firm, oh man, a long time, <laughs> almost 20 years now. Yeah, I uh, became yeah. an attorney in 2006. And so I've been That's an true. attorney for 17, about 17 years now, which seems like a wow. lot longer once I say it. Um, my yeah. background, my father was a business person here in Indianapolis, small business owner. And so I've always been sort of involved in small businesses. My mother also owned a business uh, growing up. So I've always, I've had to sit through meetings. I've talked to bankers with my parents. I've done all those sort of things. And so I was, as an attorney, I was excited to work with business owners, small business owners. And a lot of times um, those small business owners are real estate investors.
0: Yeah. And so
1: my family also owned real estate. We all, it was commercial. So it was a little different. But I've been involved in sort of the real estate market, understanding how investors think, how they need to protect themselves. I've been involved with that pretty much my entire adult life. And so that really led me to want to practice this type of law. And so I've been doing evictions pretty much from day one (laughs) as an attorney. And so I've been very, very involved with evictions, as well as helping real estate investors form their entities, helping them protect themselves drafting forms, making sure that their documents are in place, because that's very important for real estate investors, for property managers. Um, having the best documents is your first line of defense. So
0: yeah, absolutely. So for today's show, you you talked about it just a minute ago, I want to talk about evictions. Yes. Um, you've done a bunch of them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, evictions are Evictions are scary for landlords. They're, they're worst case scenarios for both landlords and tenants. I think we need Mm -hmm. to be very cognizant of that. This is a, you know, a bad situation for all parties involved. And when we, when we talk to new investors, evictions are generally one of the first questions they ask about, Mm -hmm. like, you know, how do they work? What happens if I have to do it? What, how much is it going to cost me? How long does it take? And it's a source for, it's a source of a lot of stress for new investors, um, and I think honestly, evictions are one of those things that may keep people from becoming an investor because they hear the horror stories. And let's face it, Laura, you know, we know there are some horror stories out yep. there and they just may decide when they hear these horror stories that, you know, investing isn't for me and I'm just going to invest in something, not, not do real estate, invest in something mm-hmm. else. So I thought I'd bring you on today to help shed some light on how evictions work here in, in Indiana, because sometimes the scariest things are just things that we don't know about. Yes. <laughs> so yes. I'm hoping you can, I uh, know you will shed some light on, mm-hmm. you know, how evictions work. So for context, how many evictions does your firm process on a monthly basis? Would you guess?
1: On a monthly basis? Um, it goes up and down. I think this, this month, we're probably at 75 evictions okay. this month. And I would say 95% of those are for or 97% of those are non payment, there's some months that we only have 20. And so right. it really goes up and down, It there's not a consistent number, but I would say anywhere from 20 to 70 a month is what we process.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And I'll hit on something before we really dig into this a little bit is that we found, and I think you'll totally agree is that the number one way to prevent evictions is to make sure your screening process is really dialed in. Yeah. Right? I mean yeah. you got to know who you're placing in your property. This is a very very probably the most important decision you'll make as a landlord is who you place in your property. It does help to have very consistent collection processes on, you know, for the rent collection, but if you can really get a very qualified, high-performing tenant in your property, it does make things easier. But having said that, and we do some forensics on evictions that we have to do. And we look at, you know, who we placed, what, what did their application look like? And we have placed some very, very high qualified tenants, high 700 credit scores, very good rent income ratio. But life changes, life can happen, so to speak. People lose their jobs, people get sick, people get divorced. And a very, very qualified tenant, let's say in January, be- could become a very unqualified tenant in May. So (laughs) as you mentioned, um, the number one reason you file for eviction is non-payment of rent. I guess technically you can file for any breach of lease. And I think we've had some rare instances where we may have filed eviction for non-payment of rent, but let's face it, that's the main reason people, people do file eviction. So, okay let's get into some details. So Laura, let's first talk about the process of filing an eviction here in central Indiana. I'm a landlord. I have a tenant who isn't paying rent. I followed all my collection processes. The tenant stopped responding, or maybe they've broken some promises to pay. Mm-hmm. I, I call your firm. What happens next?
1: So the first thing that I need, is, I need to know is obviously why we're evicting typically. Like you said non-payment, and then I need to see the lease. So when I, when I work with property managers, I know what their lease looks like. So I'm not as, uh, I don't need to necessarily look at the lease every time in those situations because I know what their lease looks like. I know it says that if they don't pay on the first, we have the ability to, to evict on the second. I know that it says no notice is required or if notice is required and that the, that notice has been given. So really looking at the lease is, is one of the first things that I have to do to make sure that we're ready for the eviction. And that all notices have been sent, if required, as well as we've passed the date that um, an eviction could be filed if they if the person fails to pay. Right. My next step is to um, get the ledger, (laughs) figure out how much is owed, figure out when the last payment was made, get all communications with the tenant, and then at that point in time, once I feel comfortable saying, "Yep, we're ready to file," I would, depending on who the client is, I would retain them, have them retain my office. I, ha- I get all the documentation, like I said, the ledger, the lease, and then we draft the eviction. I talk about a little bit with my property managers and my landlords about wh- what township the property's in or what county the property's in. And I give them their their various options of where the eviction could be filed. Typically, Marion County, you can either file in township courts or superior courts. And we talk about that, talk about the difference in, of cost and the time period, and then file the eviction. Typically, it takes my office... I would say 24 to 48 hours to get the eviction completed. Um, I do need a couple affidavits signed by either a property manager or by the owner of the property that states what's owed, as well as some other things such as that the person's not military and that they're not incompetent. And then we get the eviction on file. So that's typically the process that I start with the eviction. It's usually pretty fast for non-payment of rent like I said we can get it usually done in 24 to 48 hours because it's important to if we are if, if the person is going to evict the tenant they want to be able to get the get them out as soon as possible so that the property can start making money again which is the <laughs> which right. is what the goal is they don't want to have carrying costs for months and months without a tenant paying rent
0: yeah so we talk to you every month I'm sure about evictions we do have to file eviction here we you know, a lot of our evictions, because we do track this, are from inherited tenants, we call them. So there mm-hmm. are tenants that we did not place. So it could be that another property management company placed them. It could be that the owner, uh, the investor themselves placed the tenant. But it's just part of, you know, at, this, at our size, we're going to evict mm-hmm. people every month. Unfortunately, it's just part of, of what we do. So, one of the things we've talked about, Laura, over the years is, and something we've been very—we we talk about this a lot here—is the importance of consistency, mm-hmm. right? And we're we're one entity out there. We manage now more than twelve hundred properties, but even for the person that owns, let's say, twenty properties, or you know, somewhere around there, talk about the importance from a fair housing perspective on the eviction process. I mean, everyone needs to have a, like I mentioned, a collection process that includes Mm -hmm. eviction, right? So talk about why you need to be consistent that way when it's like when you file evictions and in your overall process.
1: So I always tell landlords that they need to make sure that they're following what their lease says. Mm -hmm. um that's what the tenant signed that's what the tenant should use as their sort of guideline to what they need to be doing so if the the lease says that rent's due on the first then the landlord needs to make sure that that's the case that the tenant is paying rent on the first and if they're not paying rent on the first then they issue their late fees which if those are allowed by the lease or issue the late letter or whatever provision is allowed for in the lease um you want to make sure that you consistently do that throughout, throughout every lease you have and throughout every property you have. And if you don't do that, a couple different things happen. And one issue is fair housing. If you don't do that and you say, you know, this tenant for the, property a, you know, I'm going to let them go. I'm going to let them, I'm not going to file until the 15th of the month, even though the lease says that I can file on the second. Oh, but this t- property tenant B oh, I'm going to file on the third. I'm, I'm really mm-hmm. going to decide. I don't, I don't want to deal with them. And they're, there could be various reasons for doing that but in order to prevent a claim for discrimination that you're doing tenant a this way because of they are a certain c- protected class or not a certain protected class and you're doing tenant b right. this way because they are a certain protected class you want to prevent any claim of that whether i mean typically that's the the thinking is nowhere close to that But you want to make sure to protect against any any showing of of that, that a third party would come in and look at the situation and say, well, why did you do this? It looks like you did it because of of discrimination. And so if you treat everybody the same and follow the procedures that are within your lease, then you don't have that. You can say, look, I filed on tenant A on the third of the month. I filed on tenant B on the third of the month. There's no question that I filed because they failed to follow my lease, failed to do what they were supposed to do. So I, I do yeah. believe that's a reason, and also I, I think it, right. it it sort of shows the tenants. You don't want a tenant to think, well, I've paid on the fifteenth of every month, and you haven't done anything. Why did you file the eviction this time
0: on Absolutely. the tenth of the
1: month? Um, and, and and though there's legal reasons, that's okay, that I, I think are probably beyond what we'll talk about today. But it, it's just I think a tenant views it as that's not fair. You've told mm-hmm. you've allowed me to do this multiple times and then now you're all of a sudden not allowing me without any notice. and and I think that tenants a lot of times I, I hear that a lot that I've paid late every month. why are why is this happening now? And then that sort of prevents that from happening. if a tenant says, you know what, you filed every time I paid on the paid after the first. then right. they aren't they aren't in a situation where they've paid late for multiple months yet they're now having an eviction.
0: Yeah, it's a precedent, right? Typically, people will do, you know, let's make this sound condescending, but as you train them, right? So, if you allow your tenant to pay rent late every month, they probably will.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've heard I, it's like my my children do that too. So, yeah, if exactly. I allow them to uh, eat dessert first, they will want to. That's dinner. right.
0: Right. Right. Let's talk about something that I think there may be some misunderstanding about, and that is the 10 day notice. Oh, yes. There is yeah. a lot of misunderstanding. Yeah. So talk about There's a general perception. I don't know if it's general or not, but there are some people believe that in Indiana, I have to serve a 10 day notice uh, before I file eviction. Talk about that.
1: So, and, and I, I think it is a general perception. And in fact, if you do a lot of Googling mm-hmm. um, there, it comes up a lot that there's this 10 day notice required. I've even seen it written within articles. Tenants rights articles right. about this 10-day notice, and it doesn't give sort of context of what it actually is. Right. So in Indiana, there is a law out there that says you have to provide a tenant a 10-day notice to pay or quit. And what mm-hmm. that means is you have to serve them a notice that says if you don't pay X amount by this day or leave, then you I will file an eviction against you. What people don't look at is the law that comes eh, a couple couple provisions after that that says when the notice to quit is not necessary. And that's where, and there's a couple different different time periods that it's not necessary. One of them is if the express terms of the contract re- require the tenant to pay rent in advance, so having a lease, that requires mm-hmm. the tenant to pay on the first, and the tenant refuses or ne- neglects to pay the rent in advance. Right. So if the tenant refuses or neglects to pay on the first. So mm-hmm. that is one of the the, re- the ways that a notice to quit is not necessary. So right a lot of people think, well, Indiana law requires it. Well, you're right in certain situations. And in most situations, when there's a lease, it is not required.
0: Right. And that's that's where us as a property manager always has a lease. We just never have to go through that 10 day pay or quit. Correct. Um, we, we can accelerate that you know, uh, quite a bit. So, okay. I want to clear that up because it's you know one of those things during your collection process that you just don't have to build into assuming you have a fixed term lease and, you know, it's in effect and all that good stuff. So,
1: and assuming there's no notice provision in your lease, which I have seen before correct. there. Right. there. I have seen notice provisions in lease that requires to give the tenant five days notice if they mm-hmm. fail to pay before you file an eviction. So there are those, there are provisions out there in leases that would trump this when the 10 day is not necessary. If the lease requires it, then you still have to follow it. Right. Um, but so that's why in most situations, I make sure the leases I draft and the client's leases I review um, don't have a provision like that that would allow them to file immediately upon my non-payment.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So the timeframe to actually file the the, the notice or the, the eviction is, is pretty quick. You mentioned 24 to 48 hours. Mm-hmm. What's it cost me? And let's forget about attorney's fees for a minute. If I just wanted to file an eviction myself, I go online, get the forms. I'm going to pay something. There's filing mm-hmm. fees. Like yep. what, what, what is the filing fees? What, what are the yep. filing fees today?
1: So it depends on where you file. Um, Like I talked about Marion County has township courts. We have nine separate mm-hmm. township courts as well as um, a superior court system. And mm-hmm. so the costs in those small claims, township courts is less than the superior court. I, I, I don't quote me on this, but I think it's, I want to say it's like $94. And then with service, I think whenever we file online, the number $107.38 comes to mind. I think that's typically what
0: <laughs> that's the filing fees
1: are because <laughs> there's some extra fees to file right. online, but right. that, that's about what the filing fees are for small claims court. Superior court is more expensive. uh dollars 01 is the number that I always see. Okay. That's the superior court filing when we do a filing online.
0: Right. Okay. And then you can file quickly. I mean, i you know, back in the day, I remember when we prior to us having a property management company, and it was just Scott and me with our own rentals, we'd file ourselves. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we go to Washington Township, Small Claims Court, or Center Township, and just fill out the paperwork. And it's quick. So again, filing is quick and easy. uh, But when I file today, how soon should I expect a hearing?
1: That's a good question. And again, it depends on the court that you're located in. Uh, Typically, I like to tell clients three to six weeks after after the filing, you will get a hearing date that could be longer. Mm -hmm. That's just a a general rule of thumb, depending on where you file, um, how busy the docket is, whether there's any uh, court holidays coming up. I know like in in one week in September, this coming up, there's a court required judicial meeting. So almost all courts are closed during that time. period. So a hearing that normally would have been held that week is going to be held the next week. So it really depends. But I think three to six weeks is a um, good time frame. And one of the reasons that three weeks, uh, there has to be a certain time frame to allow for service of the defendant of the lawsuit. So we always, three weeks is pretty much the shortest that I believe we should go in order to allow for the correct time of service of the lawsuit on the defendant. If we go shorter than that, then a lot of times it doesn't get served, which is a whole other issue and just takes longer.
0: Right. Okay. So you see this every month. We see this every month. We file for the eviction or you file for us, the eviction and the money shows up, mm-hmm. right? We get paid in full and that's, that's great. And as long as it's paid in full, we will move forward with the dismissal. Yep. We we call it collection by eviction, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it does happen. It, it's it happens in a, in a good number of uh, cases that we have to file But there are times when, yeah, we are going to court, right? So the Mm -hmm. the hearing date shows or comes up. We haven't heard anything from the resident. Walk me through, it's been a long time since I've actually personally attended a hearing. Walk me through what that looks like the day of the hearing.
1: So the day of the hearing, again, depending on what court we're at, either I need somebody who is going to testify as a witness, typically in superior courts. And there's some county courts that we go to that I know that the court's going to require me to have a witness there. Mm -hmm. And that witness would then testify as to what's owed, that there's a lease, any communications with the tenant, stuff like that. In small claims courts in some county, different county courts around Indianapolis, I'm, I don't require a witness. I'm able to go by myself. I have an affidavit from the client that shows that there's amounts owed, and I present that affidavit to the court, and that's enough to get the eviction so long as the defendant doesn't contest that or say, right. no, I paid. This, these numbers on the ledger are wrong. If that's the case, if, if a defendant is there and contested, a lot of times we'll continue the hearing. If I don't have a witness there with me to to be able to say whether or not that's true, I'll continue the hearing in order to allow for what's called a contested hearing. Mm-hmm. And that's where there's going to be evidence presented about what's owed um, other than just an affidavit uh, to the court. Right. And so in those contested hearings are typically set about a week or two out from the original hearing. Gotcha. Sometimes there's situations where the tenant is, sometimes they have attorneys and those those will obviously, the attorney will be present with the defendant. But I find, unfortunately, about, I would say 70% of my cases, the tenant doesn't even appear at the hearing. And at that time, we request possession of the property from the court and get a court order for possession of the property.
0: Right. A couple of points there. Yeah. I think it is an issue. I mean, residents are, are, are not represented very Mm -hmm. well at all. And I think that's, your numbers are consistent from what I've heard that they just either, most of them just don't show up. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's reasons for that. They know it's, they have, they realize they haven't paid rent. They realize it's a formality and maybe they just say, I'll spend my time getting myself moved and and that sort of thing. But Mm -hmm. you'd mentioned before, this is really the hearing and and the claim that that are this being filed is for possession right? You're, you're yes, yes. filing for possession. And then that hearing is is for that. So, okay. So a typical case, you appear in front of the judge, the mm-hmm. defendant, the, the tenant does not, mm-hmm. you're granted possession of the property. That used to be very quick. Judges had very, very little patience, or it was maybe a different world. And it was, if we had a hearing on a Thursday, it was landlord possession, midnight Sunday, or something yeah. like that. Um, mm-hmm. what are you, what are you seeing today? Like if, if you have a hearing on a Wednesday, when can the landlord get possession back of that property?
1: I typically see, um, 72 hours, I think is the least amount of time allowed by law that they can, okay. unless there's an emergency situation. I think 72 hours is the least amount of time I am seeing one to two weeks is pretty typical mm-hmm. as a time frame for when the, landlord, the tenant is required to be out of the property. If they appear and they give information about, well, I have a new place or, I'm trying to gather the money and it will be two weeks, I think the courts are much more likely to give them more time than than previously. But yeah, about one to two weeks is our typical time frame for obtaining possession of the property. And that's okay. just the date of possession. That's the, the date on the order that the tenant is required to be out of the property.
0: Gotcha. So I'm doing some very sophisticated math here. So if it takes me <laughs> three to six weeks... To get a mm-hmm. hearing, and then it take yeah I get another one to two weeks for possession. Mm-hmm. My best case is probably thirty days to file and get possession. Correct. but it could go as far as as much as sixty days potentially Correct. in some yes. circumstances.
1: and, so, and that's it. Yeah. Yes, and, and I've seen courts skip thirty days recently. I mean, it it happens. For possession, you're
0: talking yes, about. for possession, yes, for possession. If
1: there's certain situations, and I think that one of the things, and we haven't talked about this, yet, we can talk about this a little bit more in detail. But is the ability to get rental assistance for tenants has really increased the amount of time that courts are giving, because the rental assistance that the tenants are are obtaining or trying to get applying for takes a lot of time.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: a it's a long process, and so courts are reluctant to if the tenant is within the pro- application process of whatever rental assistance, which in Marion County, it was called Indy rent, but which is now no longer giving rental assistance. But the tenants were, the courts were much more likely to give the person time in order to proceed with that process. Um, And so we were seeing 30 days, eh, not much longer than 30 days, but we were seeing 30 days if the tenant can show, yes, I applied, here's my application, here's showing it's in process. Right. Um,
0: And that that can work out for both parties, right? Exactly.
1: Yeah. Because that would, I mean, and I always tell my, I tell tenants when I'm in court, I'm like, my client is not in the business of getting you out of the property. My client is in the business of keeping you in the property and having you pay. We don't, my client does not want you out. They just want, they want you to pay. That's, that's Mm -hmm. the goal is to have a paying tenant who is happy with the property and a landlord who is happy with receiving the payments. That's why everybody entered into the lease.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, like I said, no one wants to evict. I mean, it's worst-case no. scenario for everyone. No, it
1: really is. And I think that's a misconception that all that landlords just want to get just want to evict and are are money hungry when when in reality it's these landlords, especially the single family owners, they have bills too. That's right. They have to pay for property taxes, they have to pay for their own mortgage, they have to pay for insurance. All they have their own bills too. So it's not that they are trying to hurt the tenant. It's not that they're trying to, they're not money hungry. They're just trying to recover the money that they are entitled to under their contract.
0: Right. That's exactly right. So, okay. So you're given the possession date Mm -hmm. and this happens occasionally, particularly since housing is, is we have too little housing and, and mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's hard to find places to live today. Mm-hmm. The tenant doesn't vacate. Yeah. Right. So judge says, Hey tenant, you need to be out on September 5th, landlord shows up the property on September 5th, tenant's still there, sorry, can't find a place to live. Or maybe they're, you know, they're obviously still there, they're at work or whatever. And so mm-hmm. they've defied. you know, they've not followed the judge's orders and you have to go to a more difficult yeah pro, a more difficult process yeah. called the forced move so can you walk through if landlords face themselves in this position mm-hmm. what they do at that point
1: yes so typically at that point in time client contacts me they say tenant a was supposed to be out by this date and they're not what do i do and i say mm-hmm. okay well under indiana law there's a specific statute that governs what has to happen In those situations and that statute discusses having a licensed, bonded and insured mover. Go to the property and take the take any of the personal property that's there and store it. Um, How that happens, the actual process of that happening is we have to go through either the Marion County Sheriff's Office, if we're here in Superior Court or the various Mm -hmm. constables um, in township courts or the sheriff in whatever county we're in. Right. Um, and have the sheriff coordinate with the moving company to go out to the property. Um, a lot of times they have to punch through the locks, either if the landlord doesn't have a key or if the key tenant has changed the locks, um, they have to punch through the locks, have a locksmith with them, which the moving company usually has with them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then, um, literally do a forced move out, which is take the tenant's personal property, the tenant they are not allowed back in the property and then secure the property for the landlord that's obviously an expensive process and unfortunately the landlord has to pay for it Mm -hmm. the landlord has to pay for the movers to take the property and to go out there to that has to pay for the locksmith to change the locks so it is a very expensive proposition and if the tenant has a four-bedroom home that's full of furniture it's very expensive that's right um and, and and that's something that the landlord has to pay. This can be passed on to the tenant in a request for damages at a later date, but it doesn't change the fact that the landlord has to pay at that point in time.
0: That's right. Yeah, and it's it's, it's not a good situation. No. Um, it does seem like these things almost never happened. Like force moves were something we dealt with almost never. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did. I, I remember Scott and I having... Interesting at sheriff sale. We bought a home at sheriff sale. We would sometimes have to do a forced yep. move. Same kind of process, but it's a different mm-hmm. way about getting the property. It seems like, am I wrong? I just hear that we are not common for us by any means, but that we're seeing more forced moves. Or is that just a result of the law of averages? And we're just a lot bigger now and they're happening, you know, as a I, I, I think it is.
1: I think it really is a result. And I think that having communication with the tenant really helps prevent those forced moves. The tenant doesn't want to have their property out either. I mean, they would prefer if they have to get out, they would prefer to have their property and really communicating with that tenant and saying, listen, we are going to send the sheriff out on this day. You just need to be out by that day. Having those communications with the tenant say, listen, I understand our tenant landlord tenant relationship didn't work, but at this point in time, you just need to be out. Having those communications does help prevent a forced move out. Sometimes those aren't, Possible though, but I, I I truly believe it's just a law of averages. I don't know if it's necessarily anything different. Gotcha. Uh, okay. In today's environment, it's just if the more evictions you file, the more enforcement cuts you're going to have to
0: do. Yeah, it's just a reality. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you mentioned briefly just a minute ago about damages, and that's a mm-hmm. that's a that's a big question landlords have. So obviously, you evicted. You know, in most cases, you've evicted your tenant for non-payment of rent. So the ledger you mentioned shows some balances due. Mm -hmm. landlords are entitled to that rent, you know, all the way through the process. And at the end, let's say that you find that you're owed $5,000, let's say, as an example, Mm -hmm. when you look at all the back rent, any damages the resident might have done to the property above normal wear and tear, you apply to deposit and you say, wow, this, this person owes me Mm
1: $5,000.
0: What, what do, what do you, is a good path for landlords at that point?
1: So typically when we have the initial possession hearing, the court also either at the the initiation of the case or at the possession hearing sets what's called a damages hearing. Mm -hmm. And that's that second hearing where the landlord is able to present evidence about what their damages are. And so damages includes unpaid rent, late fees, utilities that haven't been paid by the tenant as well as any other fees that are allowed for in the lease and actual damage to the property. So Mm -hmm. carpet needs to be repaired, holes in the wall, stuff like that. All of that is considered damage that would then be evidence would be presented for at the damages hearing. And then a judgment is sought against the tenant. A monetary judgment is sought against the tenant for those amounts. Right. So that is all in sort of that second hearing. And typically I have to have a witness with me at those hearings in order to present that testimony about what those damages are.
0: Right. This is something that we try to provide a lot of guidance to our clients about to say, if all said and done, you apply the deposit, maybe the eviction went pretty quickly and you're owed 700 bucks. Is it really worth pursuing that? You have to make those decisions. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. It is a decision. And a lot of times I, I tell clients, you know, you spent so much, you spent money thus far, you spent money on me, you spent money on the court costs, you spent money on your carrying costs in the meantime, do you want to continue to spend attorney's fees in order to get the damages? Right. Cause it is additional attorney's fees because it's another hearing.
0: Yeah. And
1: especially if you have a tenant who has, you are uncertain about their income, if they're on social or if they're on social security or if they're on disability, Types of income that you that cannot be garnished or cannot be taken to for a judgment, then a lot of times it might not be worth it for the client and to to, to obtain this judgment against this person if that judgment's not going to be collectible at a later date. And so it's really just a matter of making it's a cost benefit analysis about whether or not it's worth it to have a, a judgment, which sometimes I just say is a piece of paper that says they owe. It's right. not doesn't mean that they're going to pay. It doesn't mean you're ever going to collect money. It, it is a piece of paper. And I do realize that sometimes I talk myself out of business <laughs> by saying <laughs> that, but I mean, it's just, it's, it's something that landlords need to consider is, is it worth it? Is it really going to make sense for me to pay my attorney additional funds to just get this piece of paper?
0: Yeah. And getting back to the the screening is that, you know, as a, as a landlord, you have to run background on yes. your potential residents because, If worst case scenario, you have to file eviction and you want to get a judgment, you want to make sure you're not fifth in line on those judgments. Correct. (laughs) Right. Right? So you want to make sure that resident your place is judgment free. So in case you would ever have to file eviction on them, you have a better chance of collecting through judgments. And, you know, we've done this over the years. We, we collect money every month from a collection agency that we've used. Mm -hmm. You can get paid back. Oh, um, yeah. And but some ca- sometimes you can sometimes you can't. Again, it's like I like the way you say it's a cost benefit analysis of yes. the time and effort and money I have to spend to go after this amount of money. Is it worth it? So mm-hmm.
1: it, it really is. And and by all means, sometimes people get paid. I've seen people paid in full. If a if a uh, former tenant seeks to buy a house and they really they there's a judgment against that's them. Right. All of a sudden, they have to pay in full, or they happen to own property but we're renting for some other reason and need to sell the property. People are paid in full. So it happens all the time. I don't want to tell people it will never happen, but it's just a matter of saying, so if, if you screen them and you see that they filed bankruptcy three times in the past, how easy is it going to be for them to file bankruptcy again in the future? hmm or if you screen them and you see what the like you said multiple judgments that they already have landlords that are are seeking monetary amounts against them, how likely is it going to be that that's going to have to happen in the future? So it really is about the screening, the information you find in there, and then just thinking on a logical basis about what is this really going to mean.
0: Right. Okay. This is great. So I think we've done a you've done a great job of explaining, you know, filing eviction, going through that whole process. And then the collection piece, just a couple, a few more random questions for you. Okay. Talk about COVID and the changes. Obviously, the eviction moratoriums were part of our reality for a long while.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Has that had any long lasting effects in the court systems or is COVID kind of done with and we're kind of back to operating normally?
1: I do think like, like you had said earlier, I think it's courts have been providing more time Mm -hmm. than they have they were in the past. I think courts are are more sensitive to medical issues. So if a tenant comes and says, listen, I was off work for three weeks because of this medical issue, I think courts are much more sensitive to that, sensitive to the fact that medical issues do prevent people from working. Uh, I think it has increased the amount of rental assistance available, not just through Indy Rent, which unfortunately is a program that's closing down, but through townships and other, other Places that provide rental assistance—it's definitely increased that, which is very beneficial for tenants. If a tenant does, if like if life happens, and right. they have a child that's sick, so they have to stay home from work, having that ability to get rental assistance really helps. And I think COVID really caused that. I don't think they there were some resources available previously, but not nearly the amount that that is available now.
0: Yeah, speaking of rental assistance, I don't have a, a great grip on all the different ways we receive rent in terms of that rental assistance. I know Indie rent was a big part of it Mm -hmm. that that no longer exists, but I just happened to be looking at a ledger with an employee last week and saw that we got rental, we received rental assistance from a church in Tennessee. Mm
1: -hmm. Oh, wow. (laughs) I don't usually see out of state, but (laughs) that's um, right. (laughs) But yeah, I I think that there are so many more resources available to tenants now for them to search and say, you know, I need re- rental assistance. Maybe that church in Tennessee has partnered with a church here. Right. They had they had received some federal funds and had extra money and they want to be able to use those to, for the, the the best use. And they found that the tenant here really needed those funds. But yeah, I'm seeing it. I see that any tenant that is more proactive about it, the better. Right. So if they're more proactive about finding that rental assistance, the faster that it comes and the more likely they are to get it. I think waiting until you go to the eviction hearing and say, well, I might apply for rental assistance is not the best situation. Now, I do have to say, and one thing that happened with Indy rent re- previously, and again, like I said, Indy rents closed, so they're no longer accepting applications, is that they weren't accepting applications except for evictions. So except when a lawsuit had been filed, which is right. a tough situation. Mm-hmm. I've had many tenants say or many tenants tell their landlords, please file against me. I want to get this rental assistance, but I can't even apply until I have this eviction against me, which is yeah. see, it's just, it's really frustrating when I want to see people stay in their homes because that's how my clients make money is people are paying the rent mm-hmm. um, to say, you know, you have to get this eviction filed against you before you're even able to apply.
0: Yeah, that's tough. I mean, I, I do remember and, that. And, and, I, and I
1: don't like that, but I understand why it's necessary. They have to get the money to the people that are needed the most, which is the evictions.
0: Yeah. And I'll say something. You, you mentioned that tenants need to be proactive and look for rental assistance. I'll flip that on landlords and say, as a landlord, you should be proactive in knowing about where rental assistance is available.
1: Mm-hmm. If you have
0: a website, putting that on your website. I remember when when COVID was in its height, uh, we had we spent tremendous amount of time researching, finding and then posting various rental assistance agencies mm-hmm. out there for our residents
1: mm-hmm. and
0: being very proactive with our residents saying, Hey, here's a, a comprehensive list. I won't say it wasn't a, a full list necessary, but it was a like dozens and dozens of agencies out there at that time that were providing rental assistance and not even waiting till rent was late, but just proactively letting our residents know if you have an issue, the, come here. And and by the way, if you know of another place, let us know so we can post it. Mm-hmm. We're trying to work together. Again, we're, at the end of the day, we're on the same team. We want everyone right. to pay rent. The resident doesn't want to get evicted. So anything you can do as a landlord to be proactive in notifying your residents where they might be able to get assistance, a church in Tennessee, for example, uh, is probably a wild card, but there are still a lot of agencies out there. Mm-hmm. Who under, under the right circumstances, will help people.
1: And one prob- one issue that we ca- that came up when with indie rent and as well as others is the involvement of the landlord in the application process. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of landlords have the m- misperception, and this at one point in time maybe this was the case. But if you worked with the tenant in the rental assistance process, that means you can't evict them which is right. not necessarily the case anymore. Mm-hmm. Um so landlords were hesitant to fill out their portion of the rental assistance which then means the rental assistance process takes longer and instead of the landlord getting the check the tenant gets it. Mm-hmm. So the tenant gets a large, gets the check of whatever amount they were seeking. Unfortunately, we've had some tenants get those checks and still not provided over. And there's right. not much that can be done about that, but Having the landlord involved in the process makes the process go faster. Allows the landlord to check on their rental assistance, at least through Indy Rent, and possibly through others, and receive the funds. Right. They have a direct avenue to receiving the funds rather than the funds going through the tenant.
0: Right. Yeah. All right. Last question for you. I'll let you <laughs> go. We hear and we we know it's a thing. It, it can be a thing. Talk about emergency evictions. We've had some landlords come to us and say, "Here's my property." My tenant's late on rent, please file an emergency eviction. I know it doesn't work that way, but can you get yeah. some shed some light on when landlords can file an emergency eviction here in central Indiana?
1: Yes. Non-payment of money is never an emergency eviction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I always I tell landlords that, and even well, the tenant's gonna lose their job. Still not an emergency. Tenant went and bought a new car, not an emergency. The only time that an emergency under Indiana law is possible is if there is imminent or already completed damage to the property. So if you know that the tenant is ripping up the flooring, the tenant is punching holes in walls, the tenant is starting to take off out your air conditioner, Mm -hmm. (laughs) stuff like that. Um, Stuff that if this isn't stopped immediately, there will be a, a large amount of damage to the landlord. Having dirty carpets, probably not enough. Right. But, and I've also seen situations where if a tenant is doing something to, let's say it's a duplex and they're doing something to the person on the other side of the duplex, they're harassing them, they're yelling at them, the police are being called. I've seen those situations where courts will allow for emergency eviction because of the because of what is happening
0: mm-hmm.
1: with the tenant, not necessarily because of the damage, but if a tenant is uh, attempting to, if the police have been called because there's been threats if the tenant's making threats to the landlord. I've seen those situations happen. I had one situation where a tenant actually punched out a security camera in a hallway. It was a apartment type building. And so there were common hallways. In that situation, we were able to obtain an emergency eviction. So it really is about damage to the property. That's the nexus for having those emergencies.
0: Right. And that's something that if your clients call and say, Hey, I have this scenario, you would advise them that yes, we can go forward with an emergency eviction or, or no, you can't. Mm -hmm. And it really
1: is a fine line between, Oh, you know, that's damage, but is it that much damage? It's a fine line.
0: Right. And can you just briefly walk through if someone is, you know, being very abusive, let's say to a neighbor or, you know, Mm -hmm. another resident, what is that? Just a real quick process of what does that emergency eviction look like?
1: So the emergency eviction looks a lot like a typical eviction, um, only we file a an additional petition that has to be verified, which means signed by somebody uh, acknowledging that it's true and accurate, so sort of like an affidavit mm-hmm. that says this is what's going on, this is either the damage to the property, this is what's happening with the neighbors, and sort of laying out why an emergency is necessary. We file that with the court. The court typically, I think under statute, they have three days to set the hearing. It doesn't usually happen that fast. But the t- courts typically set it pretty fast. I think I had one set within a week Okay. Uh, on one of the ones I've done recently. And then a hearing's held. And at the hearing, I have to have a witness with me. I have to have somebody there. And I have to have whatever evidence that we need to have in order to prove that emergency eviction. So if I have video of the of what's happening, if I have pictures, I have to have that with me in addition to somebody testifying about, yes, this is what I see.
0: Got it. All and right. then
1: in an emergency, the, the court can say, you have to leave right now. Wow, <laughs> I mean, just logistically, that's really hard. But it it, it typically is, I think, twenty four to forty eight hours that the, if it truly is an emergency, that the court tells the person they have to leave.
0: Okay. So, Laura, if someone wanted to reach out to you and engage your services, what's the best way to to reach Laura Conway?
1: <laughs> the easiest way is to email me. My email is Conway C O N W A Y at Indiana. Dash attorneys with an S.com. And you can also look up my name. I'm pretty sure the firm comes up, Thrasher, Bushman, and Vocal. Mm-hmm. Our website comes up, um, or just ask Jeremy. We'll, we'll have
0: that. Yeah. Week. Yeah. Well, we'll put it in our show notes uh, <laughs> as well. So, well, Laura, thank you for joining me. I, I, I got some good information here. Uh, really appreciate you coming on today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah. We hope everyone's picked up some information that will help them and they're investing. We'll be back in two weeks with another podcast. In the meantime, we encourage you to share this podcast with your investing friends, leave us a review, and don't hesitate to reach out to us with any questions. Until next time, thanks so much for listening and please stay invested in your investment.